Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that has influenced their own work in some small way. And uh, again, a reminder that we are remote recording now. Um, uh, I'm in my bedroom. You may hear a chicken or the wild parrots in the background. Um, audio is likely going to sound a little bit different from our studios. Everything else is the same, though, except for our guest is different. Today, I'm very excited to have actor, writer, director Grace Glowicki with me. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. Um, yeah, in your own home, but here in the general way, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of you who need a little, uh, uh, you know, refresher on Grace's career, please let me give uh, an introduction bio. So Grace grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. She went to McGill University in Montreal, where she studied art history and film studies. And it was there that she auditioned for her first play and started acting. She fell in love, and by the time she graduated, she decided she had to go to Toronto to act. Her first paid job was acting as a swamp creature in an independent feature, wearing full body and face prosthetics for 14 days. This did not ward her off from her chosen career path, but instead enticed her more. She was ready to get serious about filmmaking. In 2016, Grace was awarded a Sundance Special Jury Award for Outstanding Performance for her role in Ben Petrie's Her Friend Adam and was later named a 2016 TIFF Rising Star. She has starred in films which have played at Sundance, South by Southwest, TIFF, Slamdance, Tribeca, and more, but it was that experience watching Petrie's process and success with his short that gave her the confidence to vault from the small short film she'd been directing to her feature debut. Tito then premiered at 2019 South by Southwest, where it won the Adam Yauch Hornblower, Hornblower Award. The film was called a tour de force of performance and an instant classic of acting by The New Yorker. Grace is currently in pre-production for Petrie's Worms and is in development for the ne her next directorial project as well. Um, so that's life in a nutshell. I'm sure there are many other things that we're going to cover. Uh, but Grace, <laughs> the movie that you chose to talk about today is... John Carpenter's The Fog. Can you give us a little explanation on why this one's one of your fave genre films? Yeah, well, um, to give you a bit of backstory, like how I kind of came to the film. Um, so the lockdown happened and me and my partner, uh, Ben Petrie, uh, who's my filmmaking partner, but also uh, we're dating. Um, so we were watching a lot of movies at the beginning of the pandemic and we have the Criterion channel. Then we happened to put on Cactus Flower. And Goldie Hawn is in Cactus Flower. And I just thought, oh my God, I forgot about Goldie Hawn. I love Goldie Hawn. And I went on a marathon of Goldie Hawn movies. So I just, I went through all the Goldie Hawn movies. I read her memoir and I just fell in love with Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn led me to Kurt Russell. And then I started getting interested in Kurt Russell and slowly started watching um, some of John Carpenter's films with Kurt Russell. Uh, so I think we started with Escape from New York, um, mm -hmm. Big Trouble, Little China, I think it's called. And from there, I kind of became interested in John Carpenter. So I actually haven't seen Halloween, which is what I'm understanding to be his, like one of his most famous movies. Um, but just, yeah, through Goldie Hawn to Kurt Russell to John Carpenter was kind of how I found this film. And uh, something about John Carpenter, I've just, not dissimilar to Kurt Russell or Goldie Hawn, I just, there's a joy and a fun and a pulp um, to it all. 
and and I really kind of just appreciate the the fun that it seems like he's having and with the fog Mm -hmm. it just you know I watched it on one of these COVID nights and it just totally did its job and it was fun and it wasn't too serious wasn't too scary I'm scared enough right now um so so yeah (laughs) I I quite I quite like this and the editor of Tito had a fog poster in his editing suite and I always thought and he loves horror films and I thought "Ooh, this is this just like it has a good aesthetic it has a cool vibe such a great title um so yeah so that's sort of my how I came to this film and I Gotta admit, I don't know much about John Carpenter. I haven't even seen the big ones, as I said, so I'm probably only on my fifth or sixth John Carpenter movie, but this one really stuck out as just just a fun one. Well, that's great because I'm gonna give you a little lesson on it and our ah. listeners a little lesson on the making of this movie and how John Carpenter works. Perfect. Um, for those of you who haven't seen The Fog, today's episode will give you some spoilers, obviously, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto, as always, is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you'd like to pause and watch The Fog first, this is your shot. And now that you're back, let me introduce The Fog with a quick synopsis. Written by Deborah Hill and John Carpenter, and directed by Carpenter for release in 1980, The Fog stars an ensemble cast in a remote seaside town, including Hal Holbrook as Father Malone, a priest whom we meet when he fatefully discovers his grandfather's diary, revealing that in 1880, Grandfather Malone, along with five others, plotted to sink a ship called the Elizabeth Dane, and that ship carried gold and lepers to establish a colony nearby. Then... The plotters took the gold and used it to found Antonio Bay, the town that we are now in. April 21st, the deed is done. Blake followed our false fire on shore and his ship broke apart on the rocks off Spivey Point. We were aided by an unearthly fog that rolled in as if heaven sent, although God had no part in our actions tonight. Blake's gold will be recovered tomorrow, but may the Lord forgive us. So, it is the 100th anniversary of this incident. Meanwhile, a ship gets besieged by fog and then by the ghosts of the the Elizabeth Dane who murder them. On dry land, we've got resident Nick Castle who picks up hitcher Elizabeth Solly, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Listen, I never hitchhiked before. I just really want to be careful. Can I ask you something? Sure. Are you weird? Yes, I am. Yes, I am weird. You are weird. Yes. You're weird. Thank God. <laughs> the last one I had was so normal, it was disgusting. His truck windows inexplicably shatter. Weird stuff is happening all over town. In the morning, local jazz DJ Stevie Wayne, played by Adrian Barbeau, gets woken up by her son. He has found a piece of wood reading Dane. Sometimes you're a real pain. Weird. Stevie takes it with her to the lighthouse where she broadcasts her radio show, and it starts leaking water. Screws up, uh, the, the water screws up the tape recorder, and then the board flashes six must die instead of Dane. And then it sets itself on fire. So Nick and Elizabeth find one of the fishermen's bodies in the ship and bring it to the coroner. Nick, his wounds are covered with algae. His lungs are full and there's silt under his fingernails. Tell you, I saw Dick Baxter three days ago in Salinas. Now he's lying in there on the table looking like he's been underwater for a month. It momentarily awakes and carves the number three into the floor, marking the number of people who have already been killed. 
And as we know from the board, six must die. At the station, Stevie gets word from the weather guy that there's a whole lot of fog moving in. And while they're on the phone, he answers the door and she hears his murder. Hello? Anybody here? Some asshole got drunk and started taking his 100-year-old business too seriously. Fog then disrupts the town's communications. Classic horror trope. No one can call anyone at all. Stevie, however, gets a gener- generator going in time to tell listeners to go to her house and save her son. Someone listen to me! My son is trapped! 887 White Beach Lane! My son is trapped by the fog! Andy, get out of the house! Run! The kid's babysitter is not so lucky, but Nick and Elizabeth get there to save him. Everyone gets to the church where Father Malone waits. He discovers a golden cross made from the stolen gold, then decides to sacrifice himself. This is your goal, Blake. My grandfather stole it from you. I'm the one who must answer for it. Stevie gets chased onto the lighthouse roof by the fog ghosts, who recede after Father Malone offers himself up. The fog appears in the church, and the ghost captain beheads Father Malone, saving everyone else in the town. But who knows what will happen in another hundred years. Okay, so that's the fog. Um, It's kind of a complex story. Uh, You haven't seen Halloween, but I know a lot of our listeners have, and it's... um, I would say an exact opposite. And this movie was their follow-up movie mm-hmm. to that. So they had wild, wild success with a minimalist horror film. And then were expected to follow it up with something, you know, that could wow in the same ways. But, you know, they didn't want to do the same thing twice. But at the same time, um, you know, people were like asking them to make movies. So mm-hmm. um, this are, the quotes that I'm going to say today are usually combinations of uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill um, from their commentary. So uh, sometimes I won't say exactly who's saying what's saying. But they said, quote, this was a movie we made once and it didn't work. So we had to make it again. The budget of this picture was $1.1 million. It was $900 and some thousand dollars to begin. And then we went back after we made the picture and realized there were problems with the scares. We had to get a little gorier. David Cronenberg had just come out with the scanners, and he'd taken the genre to a point where we had to go back and reassess the scares and add several thousand dollars. Originally, the scene on the boat, for instance, was scripted with no overt violence, and you never saw the ghosts. But we had to go back and reshoot all of it, end quote. So there was a kind of thing where they were like, okay, we have to make this scary. We didn't mm-hmm. know what we did. We thought we were going to make a ghost story and it would just be eerie and creepy. But they're like, oh, no, you have to make it very scary. Um, those expectations, I think, I, I'm curious how um, how a writer, actor, director handles those kinds of things. Like you just released your first feature. Um, yeah. Well, I can relate to this. Um, I, I had a problem in my film where it was kind of um, – I guess straddling a genre, like I was borrowing from some horror stuff. And then in the edit room, we kind of realized like, this isn't scary. Like mm-hmm. the, we had monsters, we had shot monsters originally and the visuals of the monsters just weren't scary. And that was kind of the whole spine of the film was that he had, my character had to be actually scared of an actual threat, but we just, what we shot wasn't threatening enough and wasn't scary oh. enough. Um, and I personally uh, just, I can't even comprehend the idea of a reshoot. And uh, maybe that's because I don't have much money to make films at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I commend John Kep- John Carpenter and Deborah Hill for like, you know, having the wherewithal to go and to, to reshoot the movie until it works. 
Um, because, you know, watching the film, you, I really can't tell that there was, you know, basically two films, uh, the original film shot and then how they would cobble it together with all the reshooted uh, material because yeah. it just c- congeals for me into a pretty slick, um, focused temporal experience when I guess, in fact, it wasn't. But yeah, I can't imagine reshooting. <laughs> but I, so, I, I mean, definitely came up against those problems for sure. And I just was like, well, it's flawed. You remade your film in the editing room then, right? Not with Not with reshoots, but within, but with editing. Yeah, so we ended up deciding to, uh, and again, like it was my first feature. So I I look at it now and just see all these problems. Um, But we basically just, you know, we're leaning on the idea that it's scarier if you don't see it, which, you know, was totally a crutch that we were leaning on. And it was the only crutch we really could could use at that point. Mm -hmm. But that's what how we ended up making sense of that problem is just never showing what it was that Tito was scared of so people could project their own fears onto whatever it is that he was seeing or they could say maybe there's nothing there. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely a, a, a cheap fix for sure. And my intention for my next film is to not run into that problem again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to get out of way early, right? Everyone oh, yeah. learns through their entire process, you know? Yeah. Um, and hopefully we just keep getting better and better as filmmakers. And yeah. I think John Carpenter and Deborah Hill on this movie, Going From Halloween, they considered this to be a much better technically film mm-hmm. than Halloween was because, mm-hmm. um, well, I'll let them say it too, because um, they're very different and they have very different um, aesthetics. They said, quote, I recall at the time we were under a lot of pressure to deliver a film that was as frightening as Halloween, but Halloween was a very different kind of movie. Unlike Halloween, these scenes are done in shots as opposed to long takes and deconstructed for tempo and visual impact. Halloween was was so lyrical in the way it was shot from the shape's point of view. And this was a different kind of storytelling. But there was very little story in Halloween. It was about style. But the fog was really made and structured in the editing room to provide a coherent narrative. Mm. Um, but we were beginning filmmakers still trying to get on the screen what we could, end quote. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think also it kind of, you know, like they're bringing up the fact that like, the type of movie that you make really dictates how it's shot, the style of it. Um, like you can't really enforce your style completely uh, on it. You know, it has to be like a, um, working for the genre that you're in. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you're talking about with um, with Tito, there's just like, is this scary? Is it supposed to be scary? Like, how do I shoot this? Um, you know, it. you wouldn't shoot it like you'd shoot a hangout movie because you're trying to make it more unnerving, more totally. uncomfortable. Totally. Yeah, and I, the visuals in the fog, like, it's interesting because it feels like with the fog, um, it's all about the plot and all about the visuals. And then what really falls short for me is the character development is pretty watered down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I it, like, yeah, I, I really respect um, the commitment to genre and to story and to visuals. Like, structurally and visually, the fog, I find pretty sound. And then where it falls short is the character development. Like Jamie Lee's character is so boring. Like there's nothing for her to do the whole time. And she's such Mm -hmm. a fantastic actress. Um, So it, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. They, they definitely achieved the visual and the plot. Um, And then, yeah, the, the character part, but in all of John Carpenter's movies that I've seen so far, it doesn't, the plot seems to be the most important thing in the visuals and the vibe. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it, yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis was having a pretty difficult time after Halloween. They said that every she would get calls from everywhere, everything. But the only thing that she was doing was like a couple of TV shows. She did like one episode of The Love Boat with mm-hmm. her mom. Like it, they mm-hmm. had to come as a package deal, and she was just like <laughs> not doing okay. Yeah. But John Carpenter had called her up and was just like, "I will write you a part." in this Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i will make sure that it is different from laurie strode in halloween and she was like great i'll fucking do it (laughs) yeah oh god he should have written her something better (laughs) (laughs) i mean have you had people who've like who've you've worked with who just like want to give you work because they're like like i'll write you a part because we had such a good experience on this or they they have like uh, an indebtedness to you of like making sure that that you're getting work as well um, I, I don't know about indebtedness, but the, like, uh, so my partner, Ben, um, he's, he's written roles for me and I've written roles for myself. And then my best friend, Harry, who just directed his first feature, wrote a role for me in that. So mm-hmm. I've been really lucky, um, that people have written roles for me and it's mostly, um, close friends that really know me quite well. And I find that those, um, the roles that are kind of written with me in mind are the ones that are often, uh, they do the best there. And they're, I think they're, yeah. And in the end, like that's the stuff I think that does well for me is the, is the things where people had me in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel very lucky that like, I have a couple directors that are always, that kind of include me in their, in their, uh, film, filmmaking families and, and write for me. Um, but also mm-hmm. like as an actor, uh, you know, you can feel desperate so easy um, because, you know, you're waiting for people to give you opportunities. So that's a large part of why I started directing and writing roles for myself, because I I really want to feel empowered and that I don't have to depend on people to write these great roles for me. So um, I come to directing in a large way because of the desire to, like, take back some of that control and to get to write myself roles so that I can explore the kind of things I want to as a performer and not be so uh, indebted or put pressure. Like I, I used to just be like, yo, write me a role. Like, right, please. Like just begging my friends. and Showing up at people's windows like, yeah. please, <laughs> we'll know. take role. I know. And I'm just like, okay, I totally look like a crazy person. Like this is not, this is not a good look. So yeah, I'm a, yeah, I'm a director now. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more of The Fog and also Grace Glowicki's career. We'll be right back. Hi, it's your host, April Wolf, here to talk about how much I love being around my cats while working from home. Um, you know, if you listen to the show, you know that Chicken often interrupts. She's a lovely screamer. She loves stepping on my keyboard, crawling up my leg, trying to eat the cords to all my computers and technology. It's really wonderful spending so much time at home alone with her. Uh, the one problem, however, is uh, the fact that I'm in my house all the time. And uh, you know what else is? The litter box. And uh, it cats do not stop you know they don't care whether you're home or whether you're not they're going to use the litter box and uh you know what i'm pretty busy i really don't want to deal with it but there is a solution and that is kitty poo club every month 
If you sign up, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. There's three to choose from right now. The boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, and have a fun design for every season. Um, so, you know, of course, it fits in with decor. When the month is up, just recycle the box, and the Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. No changing used litter and no more cleaning the box, which gives you more time alone just to spend with your cats loving them instead of hating them for stinking up the house. So, right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering you 20% off your first order when you set up auto ship by going to kittypooclub.com and entering promo code SWITCHBLADE. And again, just go to kittypooclub.com and enter promo code SWITCHBLADE to get 20% off when you set up auto ship. That is what I am doing because I do not want to worry about it anymore. That's kittypooclub.com. And don't forget to enter that promo code one more time. What was it? SWITCHBLADE at checkout. Are you feeling elevated levels of anxiety? Do you quake uncontrollably, even thinking about watching cable news? Do you have disturbing nightmares, only to realize it's two in the afternoon and you're up? If you've experienced one or more of these symptoms, you may have FNO, news overload. Fortunately, there's treatment. Hi, I'm Dave Holmes, host of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters helps fight FNO. That's because Troubled Waters stimulates your joy zone. On Troubled Waters, two comedians will battle one another for pop culture supremacy. So join me, Dave Holmes, for two, two, two doses of Troubled Waters a month. The cure for your news overload. Available on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Grace Glowicki, and we're talking about The Fog. Um, so this movie, despite it having, you know, seemingly a, a fairly substantial budget, uh, 1.1 million uh, complete, um, which in those days, I can't, I don't know what that is. Is It, it must be like 8 million at least, or something like that. Um, so hard to say. Who knows? <laughs> Still, it was it was still a scrappy production, you know, and they had come off of Halloween, which had a much smaller budget, too. Um, and so they were as a team, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, like um, they were very accustomed to doing kind of a low budget fixes and things. And it's really inspiring to hear them talk about it in the commentary. But Deborah Hill ended up having to be um, she was the second unit director on this um, uncredited and uh, would go out and shoot a lot of the stuff that they had in terms of both reshoots and everything that was um, in the um, the original cut. But a lot of what she did, if you remember the opening sequence of all the weird stuff happening town and just kind of like um, random things popping up, like she ended up shooting a lot of that and also shot a lot of the exteriors of the towns, um, just random kind of creepy sequences and scenes. Um, but the way that she did that is, quote, Ray Stella, my camera operator, and I, we went out with a flashlight and car lights. We had a station wagon and I'd put this little light on a little piece of a building and hold a tree branch in front of the lights to give it a little mood and we would shoot it. When people tell me they're going to shoot second unit and they have a DP and an operator and a grip, I'm like, what do you need all this for? End quote. <laughs> uh, I mean, I appreciate that kind of scrappiness. And the thing is that like, 
it is a fairly simple thing. She did go out and she shot these scenes that like, I never would have thought that it was just done with a station wagon and a flashlight. She understood that like, if you put a tree in something, if you give something depth of field, if you do that, then like it, it has production value to it. You just have to do a little uh, tweak to the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just appreciate that. Yeah. From from what I understand, like, um, yeah, Halloween, I, I think I heard it was like 300,000 and then grossed like many, many millions. Um, so from what I gather, like um, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, very uh, resourceful mm-hmm. filmmakers. And I really respect that because... Um, yeah, I've always felt that way personally. Like you really can make a movie with not much. Um, and the, you know, in Canada, at least like the the bigger industry makes you feel like you can't make anything for under a million dollars. Like that's just absurd to think you could do anything. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just so, uh, so not the case. Um, we shot my feature film in seven days for about 40 grand total Canadian. So that's like way less uh, in American money. And it, and I've always just really believed that. Like you can go out with a flashlight in a station wagon and shoot stuff that can make it in the movie for sure. Um, so yeah, I think that's... And, and now with COVID too, it's um, that resourcefulness is proving to be really useful when we're so limited. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm really grateful, yeah, to to be able to look up to people like this and to see them make it happen. Uh, yeah. What was the, what was the cheapest, weirdest fix that you had or that you've had in your, oh, either well, making yeah. a film or being on a film? <laughs> so for Tito, we had a puke scene and uh, it what we, like I wanted projectile vomit that just was really girthy and colorful and just <laughs> kept coming. And we had like the production design budget was like $700. It was just brutal. And the production designer constructed a puke machine, which was basically like, just looked like, um, uh, what do you call it? When you are chugging beer out of the funnel. It was oh, like a, like a beer bong kind of a thing. A beer like- bong. Yeah. She yeah. basically made like a beer bong, <laughs> but for puke. And she just mixed together fruit loops and milk and stuff <laughs> like this. And she just stood on a chair and used gravity. And I had like a tube that we just held on the other side of my mouth. And she just would squeeze um, this, this big uh, container above the camera for it to, you know, look like it was being pushed out, uh, with projectile force. So that was, that was a good fix. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a beer, beer bonging vomit. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, you know, really expensive special effects, millions of dollars, etc. <laughs> I wanted to get a little bit more into another fix, which is something that is hard to get around unless you have someone creative and that's lighting and getting, good lighting that feels like you have some kind of production value to it that also is kind of like scrappy um Mm -hmm. because something that uh uh deborah hill and john carpenter were doing on this especially in a lot of the reshoots because they had like really no money to do those reshoots and you listen to that commentary there's like a good quarter of the film that's all reshoots it's nuts um 
But one of the things that they were doing was just like really using natural lighting in every single location. Mm-hmm. And of course, they had Dean Cundy, who was just kind of expert at like finding the right lenses and angles to, to kind of get the best out of the natural lighting. But they said, quote, we were piecing together images to our, open our film. This is all natural lighting, basically. Everything you're seeing is lit only by the lights in the store, for instance. That's why John, the actor, is standing by the refrigerator, because it was the only place we had the lights. And then mm-hmm. there's the moment with Tommy Lee Wallace's wife playing a character looking out the window. We added this at the very end, all within a month before the film had to be delivered. Again, it was all natural lighting, end quote. Um, and I think that's very smart. I think mm-hmm. that... It's, if it's possible to do natural lighting, then that's great. But there's so many places where it's, it's you know, it doesn't look amazing. You kind of need a cinematographer to, to work with those things and, and bring out the best of them. Um, but yeah, small crew, small production. A lot of times you just have like a very small lighting kit. And again, you have to use like flashlights and things or strobes, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's cool too. Like I find when you get... Like for my film, we we went and we set most of the lights beforehand. So we set practical lights. So uh, the cinematographer would put like gels or um, get an interesting bulb or or, or set mm-hmm. like a single light or something. Um, but when you use practical lights um, or natural light, um, you're also freeing yourself up time to, I think, get into a flow with the filmmaking. Um, whereas with bigger setups um there's like a a stutter step thing that happens Mm -hmm. that makes it really hard for performance but also just for the for the vibe of filmmaking where i i appreciate um less lights or practical lights or set lights uh, as opposed to big lighting setups uh just because you can get into a, a flow more and and i think that flow adds you know maybe as much production value as banging lighting setups just Mm -hmm. in a different in a different way um but that's that's cool the the fog is so well lit so it's actually surprises me that that those are um you know pretty minimal because he's got pretty artsy lights cooking through this one like dean cundy is a personal hero of mine he's he also was uh um i think he was either second camera he kind of stepped in and do a lot of like um uh first camera on um one of my favorite movies the witch who came from the sea which we did an episode on and early even earlier in his career but um he obviously did like jurassic park and a bunch of you know he's like one of the most sought after uh, cinematographers in the business um so smart but the thing is like he just had an understanding of how to use less to make more mm-hmm. and um you know Deborah Hill, she said that she met him um, on set. She said, quote, before Halloween, I was script supervisor and that's where Dean, a script supervisor, and that's where Dean Cundy and I worked on nine pictures together. We worked in this thing called a movie van, the size of a Volkswagen van that would hold the entire grip, electrical, and camera department. When we started making the fog, we ended up getting our own grip truck, but the camera operator drove the Winnebago, end quote. So they were still cool. using the one-man band Winnebago that Dean Cundy had like filled with all of his stuff and they they were just kind of like cool. going in as technicians. So it was like almost down to a science at that point of mm-hmm. how they were going to get um, more from less. Mm-hmm. And um, and a lot of that has to do with lighting and, and um, 
one of the reasons why they ended up choosing him and um, even originally before was because he could understand color and he could understand darkness. And so for horror directors, if you don't get a cinematographer who can understand how to get the blacks really black, then you're kind of you're out of luck because you need that negative space so often to kind of play with framing. And um, he was just one of the few people who was just, who just got it, who knew how to, how to light minimally and um, to frame maximally. Um, I love Dean Cundy. Yeah. That's the, that's the dream. Like to, to have um, a cinematographer who's not like wanting like so much gear around. Like, I feel like that's really rare to find someone I'm, um, and I feel lucky I found a cinematographer who I feel like is really nimble, um, and resourceful. Um, but yeah, I'm really not, uh, not terribly attracted to the idea of, uh, some, like a lot of contraptions and a lot of wires and a lot of lights, like, and someone, uh, on some sets as an actor that I've been on, you really feel like, um, the cinematographer can, has the ability to really take over, um, and to, to feel like the biggest presence in the room. Um, and it all, and it becomes about the gear and, mm-hmm. and that I always find to be, um, an alienating position to be in because it becomes less about, um, the movie and more about the gear. Um, so it's, it's cool that this guy, uh, you know, was a little more minimalistic and resourceful. Cause I think it helps the film and the, humanity of the film. We're going to take a quick break again. And when we come back, we'll get back into the fog and into Grace Klawicki's uh, Tito. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dave Hill from before. And I'm very excited to bring Dave Hill's podcasting incident back to Maximum Fun, where it belongs. You can get brand new episodes every Friday on MaximumFun.org or, you know, wherever. And while my partner Chris Gersbeck and I might lack in specific subject matter on our podcast, we make up for in special effects. Chris, add something cool right here. Also, we have explosions, animal noises, and sometimes even this. Dave Hill's podcasting incident every Friday on Maximum Fun. Chris, do another explosion right here. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, joined today by Grace Glowicki, and we're talking about The Fog. You mentioned Janet Lee before, and of course, Janet Lee, a consummate professional. Um, it was kind of their dream to be like, oh, well, we already know Janet Lee, and we need this person, and we're putting Jamie Lee Curtis in this, like, we're definitely going to ask if her mom can do it. Mm-hmm. And so it was like a, a huge get for them, like Hal Holbrook and, um, and Jamie Lee Curtis. It was just like, it kind of made the movie. Um, uh, and, and so Janet Lee, um, she didn't have a lot of scenes, but of course, I think that they were kind of emotional and they had a lot of impact in a movie. In the movie, her husband is one of the fishermen who dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a scene in the bar um, where there's like a gathering outside where there's supposed to be like a, a hundred year anniversary. And it's a really emotional scene. And for that one, it was extremely difficult it ended up being a much much longer shoot than they had anticipated quote it was really fun working with janet she's an incredible an incredible pro in this scene she has to cry and for technical reasons she had to do it 14 times in a row 
She's a pro. This bar we shot in, of course, you know, favorite to the, for the crew to come in after hours and relax, watch television and listen to country music. So you see them in the background. There's a great collection of Elvis statues to the right, right out of frame. And you don't see them because I didn't want any cuts in it. That's why it took 14 takes. We had a tracking shot that comes down the bar and ends in a two shot. We did, however, have to cut to the radio because we dropped part of the scene in the two shot, end quote. So it, it opens with her. It's a pretty tight, long shot of um, the bar. So you get a lot of depth. Um, and then Janet Lee's in, in the frame and she has to cry. And then as she walks out of frame, they pull down and they do a tracking shot down the bar um, to, hit, to hit that too. And it's, <laughs> I just feel like, like in the commentary, Deborah Hill's like, why did you want to do that? And he's just like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I feel bad for her. Cause actually that I always, that was a part of the film I criticized. I thought, I thought it was a little unclear that she had suffered a loss. Um, mm-hmm. and so there, there was an emotional logic around there that I thought was, um, brushed over and it would make sense to me if it was brushed over because of technical priority. Um, so yeah, cause that, that, like I even still now I'm like, did her husband die? Cause I don't, mm-hmm. I didn't really feel that, um, grief. Um, yeah. and, it, and I'm hearing now that it really was there and it was, um, lab- laboriously pulled out of her, but yeah, I missed, I missed that emotional impact. Um, maybe because of that, the focus yeah. on the shot. I think potentially, yeah, because instead of getting her in a in a medium or a close to like see her reaction and kind of take that emotional weight, we're getting her in a wide that has to pull out. And mm. um and that's I think you know, I wonder if John Carpenter would have done it differently. But he it seemed like <laughs> it's a it's a strange thing and I think that we can all get kind of caught up on these things of like how we envision a scene and wanting yeah. to be technically proficient and then forgetting along the way that there might be other things that we're forgetting because we get so um caught up mm-hmm. in the fact that like it has to look this way. Have you had moments mm-hmm. like that where you've had to kind of like break out of, of that and be like, okay, maybe it can't look this way. Maybe I have to do something different. Yeah, I would say I'm kind of coming at it from probably too far the other way where I don't um I'm trying to work on like storyboarding or like proper shot listing like I I would say like I'm I'm always just thinking about performance um and so I I, sometimes it's it's probably then my visuals or my shots uh, aren't intentional enough because I've just been thinking about the performance too much. So I think actually my problem is the opposite where I'm uh, more interested in uh, trying to figure out a little more of a rigid approach to technical, to the technical aspect of, of shooting. Cause mm-hmm. I would, as now, as I am now, like I've, I would say like, I've probably, I haven't made that mistake. Um, I've made the opposite mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually do think, I mean, we, we've got another episode on an, an Anthony Minghella movie, Truly Manly Deeply, where he came from the theater and um, he had the same thing. And, and his, you know, that, that movie was his first film and it was very much about him just trying to get a performance on the screen. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that low budget filmmakers, though, even, you know, early in your career, one of the things that you can use to your tools, even if you can't get everything that you want on screen, is going to be sound. And that's something that um, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill had always um, uh, excelled at um, in terms of how to use sound effectively. And um, what they said was, quote, there's a lot of tricks we did with just surprising the audience with sound. And it really worked out well. It's one of the tools you have when doing a low budget movie is using sound effectively. 
Nowadays, we mix for four to six weeks. In those days, we mixed for three days on this movie at Writer Sound, end quote. So they had to come in with a sound plan, um, a sound, sound plan, uh, you know, even before they would get into the uh, mixing because they just didn't have a lot of time to do it. So um, it became a part of their scripting process. You know, how how are we going to mm-hmm. think about this early on and beforehand? And um, and I also think, you know, it's one of the things, sadly, that um, maybe a lot of indie um, filmmakers in their early careers don't always think about sound. But part of that is because they don't have the budget for like good sound mixing or mm-hmm. something, or they don't, you know, like maybe they're not thinking about that to put the sound aside. Um, were you, do you feel like you had um, the proper time to kind of mix and do that post-production on your, on your film? Well, I, I got pretty, so I did the sound design on my film and I got pretty into it because of exactly what you said. Like it's, it, it was a way I started trying to solve pretty much all my problems <laughs> in my film. So I would say there's like a crap ton of sound design mm-hmm. in my film and a bunch of score. It's just a wall to wall sound. Um, and probably uh, some of, some of it is made from an insecure place of, uh, you know, just wanting to be extra clear or wanting to prevent mm-hmm. any kind of drop of the ball Um, so I'm definitely learning about, uh, how to be more subtle, but, uh, my thinking with, with sound design was that it was essentially a free way for me to enhance the clarity uh, or emotion of my film and to give it Mm -hmm. style. Um, and I was just ripping things off of YouTube and I was recording my, my own voice with my like H1 zoom, like with my cell phone. So I was really kind of doing a cheap version of, of sound design, but in the end it, it worked out. And then I think we met, we were mixing for probably like four, four days as well. Um, that's where a lot of the money goes to is if you're spending too much time or any wasted time in post-production for sound eats the budget a lot. So yeah, I'm going to approach my next project, which is also, you know, fairly lower budget, higher budget than Tito, but still a low budget, um, really being really meticulous and clear about my plan with sound and with mixing and doing a lot of work beforehand because um, you can go down some rabbit holes and really eat up a lot of dollars in that process. Um, But I've found sound to be the most surprisingly gratifying aspect of filmmaking that I didn't think that I would take to as strongly, but I feel pretty adamant that I want to sound design all of my films. It's such a fun way to paint and to, to color a film. And there's so much expressive stuff you can do. Um, so much unconventional stuff that you can experiment with, um, that I think is really exciting. Like I, I, I love, I love sound and I love that John Carpenter scores his films. It's mm-hmm. so neat to see that's kind of rare for a director to also score their own films. And I think it's so cool. And I've learned that it was also born out of necessity. Just he could play music in, in film school and do it cheaply. And that's how it all started. Um, so I, I like how, you know, that aspect of him was born out of necessity, but it's really powerful and really directorial. Um, it's mm-hmm. cool. 
I mean, that's what you're talking about, of, of having control over things. Of Because of, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, like, how do you explain to um, your sound designer that you want something that, that hasn't been used before? Or the, you know, like, explaining sound, I think you have to come up with your own language to work with certain departments um, because mm-hmm. they have their own language. And so being, like, a kind of interpreter for those things is so much of the director's process. But if you are working on a low-budget um, thing, you know, you don't often have the time to do that so yeah having that control and and developing your own skill set in these other areas becomes um i mean necessary and what mm-hmm. you're talking about before especially with covid it becomes ultra necessary if you want mm-hmm. to be a creator in this time at all mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. yeah for sure and the control thing oh it's it's like so alluring like sometimes i'm like oh it'd be so great if i could like shoot it and act in it and score it like you know you can (laughs) but as a director like sometimes you just get a little power hungry and you want all the control to be able to like never have to translate your your vision or your directions to anyone and have them risk being muddled or distilled but i think that's the other part of it all is knowing when to let go of that you know Mm -hmm. urge to control absolutely everything um and to work with someone that's better at better at you than than things so I feel lucky I found a composer so I've been you know doing the sound design and then I have this composer and he's far more sonically uh prolific than than I am so it's it's nice to to toe the balance of being a total dictator and the collaborator (laughs) (laughs) well that's a great place for us to leave off uh grace (laughs) advice is like don't be a total dictator be a little bit of a dictator but not a total dictator yes Uh, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the fog today and can you tell people how they can um uh take a take a look at your work uh yeah so um tito uh is available uh to it's having a virtual theatrical release now so if you go to factory25.com which is our american distributor uh all the information to for how to see the film will be up on there okay so keep a lookout and go to factory25.com um again thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this movie you can also see grace's debut feature tito on amazon prime now and thank you for listening to switchblade sisters if you would like to tell us what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. Some asshole got drunk and started taking his 100-year-old business too seriously. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.